Hello and welcome to episode number 16 of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I chat with Boston Globe columnist and best-selling first-time author, Billy Baker. Billy writes features and humor columns for The Globe. His first book, We Need to Hang Out, a memoir of making friends, has raced up the bestseller list since it was published by Simon & Schuster in January. At the age of 40, having settled into his busy career and active family life, Billy discovered that he lost something crucial along the way. His friends. Other priorities always seemed to come first, until all his close friendships had lapsed into distant memories. When he accepted an assignment to write an article about the modern loneliness epidemic, he realized just how common it was to be a middle-aged loner. Almost 50 million Americans over the age of 45, particularly men, suffer from chronic loneliness, which the Surgeon General has declared one of the nation's greatest pathologies, worse than smoking, obesity, or heart disease, and increasing a person's risk for premature death. Determined to defy these odds, Billy Baker vowed to salvage his lost friendships and blaze a path for men and women everywhere to improve their relationships, old and new. In We Need to Hang Out, Billy embarks on an entertaining and relatable quest to reprioritize his ties with his buddies and forge more connections, all while balancing work, marriage, and kids. Along the way, Billy talks to experts in sociology and psychology to investigate how such naturally social creatures as humans could become so profoundly isolated today. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe and leave a review. And now, on to my conversation with Billy Baker. Welcome, Billy Baker, the author of We Need to Hang Out. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Ah, great. I'm, I'm glad you were able to make the time to join us. I'm really interested in hearing about kind of how you're dealing with the deluge of media uh, being on, as we were just talking about, you're on the receiving end of questions. You know, your book was just published in the last month. And from what I've seen, it's, uh, it's really doing quite well, getting great reviews. So how does it feel to be on the receiving end of the microphone and the questions? It's, I mean, it's, it's awkward, you know, it, uh, I'm used to asking the questions, but it, I think the, the best part of this whole writing this book, this whole journey is that it's, um, I'm the trigger for other people to get to talk about how they think about this issue. Because, uh, if there's one thing I've learned about friendship is that everyone's an expert and nobody's an expert. So it's really a, a matter of thinking it through kind of examining where you are in your life and with your friendships how you might be relating to this sort of silent loneliness epidemic going on and then, you know, taking action. So I, I told you before we get on the air that uh, I just did an interview with a radio station in Toronto and, and it really was the guy got a chance to talk about how he feels about Jim and loneliness and, uh, and we bit. And then when he cut me off, uh, he wrapped it up by saying, you know, like, I'm going to go call all my friends. And it was like, that's great. That's all that's I, I'm, great. I'm here for. 
That's yeah. what you're doing. Your book is re- reuniting long lost friends the world over. Yeah, it's called We Need to Hang Out. And I feel like that's directive, which um, sounds simple. But as I show in the book, it's, it's strangely complicated to work friendship into your life. Once you hit a, a, a certain age, once you hit this sort of broad area we call middle age, all of a sudden things that um, just came naturally in your youth require uh, effort and scheduling and all these sort of things that you feel like the last thing we want to do is add another chore to our life. But, uh, you know, my journey really was about trying to make friendship a uh, ultimately a part of my daily life instead of the sort of thing I did when, you know, my daily chores were done because they are never done. Yeah, one thing I was thinking that given the the timing of the publishing of your book, if if you had given uh, any thought to retitling it, we need to hang out, but not just yet. Not just yet. Yeah, it uh, the timing is feels fortuitous, but honestly, this issue I write about was a thing before COVID, I, and I'm hoping that COVID is, you know, it, it's that moment of pause and reflection where we realize how important these things were because they were taken away. Sure. And so, um, you know, I'm getting a lot of questions about what I what I think will happen after COVID. And uh, I'm essentially rooting for it to be this catalyst for, you know, friendship becoming us realizing that friendship is is kind of the best thing and not the the thing we do when all these other things are done, you know, sure. or, or something that we think of is, I think I was guilty of kind of putting it aside. And I don't know, I, uh, we'll get together when we're retired on the golf course. Like, I, I don't know what I, what I thought would happen, but um, yeah. So I, I, I wonder if it's worth explaining sort of the, a little bit about the book and the journey, because then I think. Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, before we uh, dive into some of the particulars about the book and how it came, came together, I, I, I did want to ask you a few questions about um, the road that you took to become a journalist uh, at the Boston Globe. Uh, I know you're a byproduct of of South Boston. Uh, and you know, you're, you're actually, you and I geographically at this very moment are not far apart. Uh, you're, you're on Cape Ann. I'm going to guess you're in Gloucester. I'm in Essex. You're in Essex. Okay. Right down the road. Uh, I'm in West okay. Newberry. Uh, okay. I'm just right up the road from you. Uh, we're, oh, right on. So it's safe to say we're both right now looking out the window at the same uh, picture of bleakness. Uh, yes, the gray sky of winter. Yeah, unrelenting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today was a weird day, too, uh, of the many weird days this winter. It, like it, it snowed, it rained, it, yeah. it's been everything. And it's yeah, only the, you know, the potpourri of winter blah today. Yeah. So South Boston, Tulane, Columbia School of Journalism, Boston Globe, uh, what led you on that path? I think, you know, growing up in Southie, you know, I think many people are familiar with Southie because it's been in a bazillion Hollywood movies, but it, it was the sort of place where you kind of hung out on the street corners and everyone was kind of a street corner storyteller. And then I, you know, when I, I went off to college and I major, majored in English and I think in my head, I was, uh, I was you know, going to sit down and write the great American novel someday. Yep. And I just got a job in journalism to, you know, pay the bills until I moved into that shack in Maine and, you know, sat down and banged out, uh, my magnum opus and the any literary was, role models as a reader. I had, you know, many, it was, it was Jack Kerouac, Hunter S Thompson, oh, Tom great. Wolf, um, royalty. Yeah. The, 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 they, they all kind of came to me at the right age, you know, like right around, you know, 
end of high school, beginning of college, where you're wondering who you are as a person. And I happen to fa- fall in with the the wanderlust crew. You know, I mean, these right. are people who are searchers, who are seeking, and um, and you know, largely working in nonfiction. Even Kerouac, who wrote fiction, it was really about his friends. So uh, I think that when it came time to actually, you know, think about a career. You know, until I wrote the great American novel, it was, you know, the, the, the truth the, the world around me was, it was so fascinating. And, uh, you know, newspapers are, you know, a standard way to get your feet wet as a writer. And, uh, I did it and I, uh, I loved it. I kind of, uh, now many years later, kind of wonder, uh, if that was the right decision for me because, um, I got into newspapers just as it became a dying industry and I've been whole <laughs> last <laughs> <I> man in. <laughs> yeah. It really feels like I I'm 44. So I'm like, uh, I sit in this unique position where when I started in newspapers, you know, the internet was, wasn't really a thing. You know, we were still like gluing the ads onto the page and then sending it off to be printed. I mean, it was real old school typewriters and ink journalism straight through to whatever it is today, you know, and was this, the globe uh, second your second. first stop? No, I, I did uh, what was a sort of proverbial journey back in the day where I went to like the crappy weekly newspaper. Then I went to the other crappy weekly newspaper. Then I went to the crappy daily newspaper. And then I, um, no offense to those newspapers. Uh, no I offense think to crappy publications <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> but uh, I, we, and then I went we to applaud you. <laughs> no, I, and I had some great times at those places because they're, they're great laboratories for learning, right? You're sure. just, you're, you're working without a net. I mean, my first daily newspaper job, I basically wrote one feature a day. And wow. now, I mean, the globe would be happy if I wrote one a week, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, they're, they're obviously more involved now, but it was just kind of like every day, you just, it, there was no news. We had to kind of find it. We had to make it. And, uh, so I went from, you know, doing that for a while. Uh, I grew up in, in Southie in South Boston. I went to South Boston, Virginia to write an article about why the heck is there a South Boston in Virginia? And I ended up meeting the woman that became my wife. So that's a great story. Yes. And, uh, and I lived down there for a couple of years, worked for their local crappy newspaper. Um, and then, uh, I, uh, and then I went to Columbia journalism and after Columbia, I basically entered the, the globe ecosystem and the globe was always, you know, I'm, I'm a new England guy and, you know, I grew up very close to the globe building and it always had this sort of romance to it. And, oh, you know, it was in some ways getting my dream job. And so that's been, it's been so long now that, uh, uh, like any dream job, you, 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 you still play the Powerball at the end of the day, you know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm incredibly dream fortunate. Job I would gladly walk away from. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's just tough. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, anyone that spend any time in the media as a profession, it, it, it's a grind, you know, and especially, yeah. you know, it, I'm a feature writer. I, I, I write humor columns. Sometimes my thing is trying to find like the original untold stories. And sure. that's like a, it's hard to do. It's hard to just keep finding something that, that hasn't been done over and over again. It's uh, my, the room I'm in right now is just covered in random post-it notes of like ideas, kernels of ideas, just things that I'm like, I mean, I'm looking at one that says snowmobiling. I don't even know what that means, but it's like, you know, I gotta, yeah. gotta put my story cap on. And at some point these things click into place. And, 
that's what I do. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a gift. I mean, I am one of these people that's used journalism as essentially just a, a scam to live an interesting life and meet interesting people. And it's, it's really a caper and I'm, I'm glad I've pulled it off for this long. And, uh, well, you're also being very humble because you obviously have, you, you, you've got a demonstrable talent for it, both in the day to day journalism that you do. And it certainly comes across in this book. Your book is such a perfect blend of kind of there's socialism in there. There's some, you know, quasi hard science in there, but there's it's lighthearted it's humorous it's it's relatable on so many levels um you know i was uh, I, I was listening to your book uh i i went the audiobook route um, okay. and there were just so many instances where i was like stopping and then rewinding and saying yes exactly and i, I think that was I mean, this story, I, ne- I never wanted to be the guy that was, you know, making the rounds talking about male loneliness. But I think uh, the reason I initially connected to it was that that word relatable, like I'm relating to this. It's it's uh, an everyman journey. And, and it turns out that the everyman is lonelier than they should be. And, and it has these terrible health consequences. So, yeah, the 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 idea of being relatable, I mean, that's kind of the goal with everything I write, you know, uh, I sometimes almost play the fool to, uh, to, to hide the learning in some ways. I mean, sure. the, when, when you sit down to write a book about male loneliness, I mean, gosh, could you imagine like, that's the sort of thing that will just, no one's going to sit next to you on the subway. If you're reading <laughs> like a book about loneliness, right. It, it clears the room. So it's a vicious you know, the, cycle. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, you know, the goal was to sort of write a book for the sort of guy who probably needs it probably doesn't read a lot of books. And, uh, but you know, hopefully if it's written in a certain way, a friend can hand it to a friend and say, this is pretty funny. And actually there was some interesting things I learned in here. So as a writer, uh, you know, writers are by nature observers. And, you know, when you kind of run your observation through that, um, the, the, that those workings in your brain and try to figure out a way that, okay, how can I, how can I communicate this observation? So, to a very large extent, you've chosen a solitary path to write about loneliness. It's the loneliest thing I can think of doing. <laughs> Yo, I mean, I can't even, I'm sitting down in my home office and the, the walls in this room have closed in on me so many times. You know, it's, it's the loneliest thing I can think of. And to sit here, I actually took a leave of absence from the globe to write a book about loneliness. And I took the leave basically during a six month period when it, the coldest six month period here in new England. And, uh, I just stare out this window each day, just like so desperate for some human connection. So it made it palpable in some ways. Uh, but Makes you it, look uh, forward to the mail coming. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, I talk about it in the book where I would go to the gym each day, like a babbling m- moron. Like I just needed someone to speak to that. I was yeah. not uh, a blood relative of, and yeah, it's the, the loneliness of the writer. It's something I, I think about almost every day. Like I, I, I some ways I think like my, in my next life, I'm going to have a career where it's more collaborative or, or something where, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we did this. And at the end of the day, there's also the we to shoulder the criticism. But uh, when it's just you, it's just your name on the page. You get all the credit, you get all the blame. And, uh, and I think as most anyone who, uh, who does this will tell you, you know, uh, 
people can say nice things to you 99 times out of a hundred, but it's the one person that decides to ruin your day that has the most success, you know? And so, yeah, right. That's the one that sticks. Yeah. It's, um, it's really like, I, I, I realized somewhat recently I'd arrived at what I think is like the ultimate goal as someone who works in, in a creative field where it was like, I really came to accept that I, I was getting the most joy out of the creation. Me, you know, so I enjoy the reporting and adventuring on whatever the story I enjoy the writing. But after that, I think, uh, you know, younger me would wait for the moment when my name would be on the front page of the newspaper and people would be chatting. What what is that going to be? But it's, um, it's, you know, and especially publishing a book, I'm not sure what I thought would happen at this moment when you publish a book, but the book came out on January 26th and I woke up on that morning and it was like, it was like my book birthday, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And then right away, your book was reviewed in the Sunday New York times. It was reviewed online that very day. And that was like the first thing I heard one of the publicists from Simon and Schuster, like sent me the email. And from that moment, I was like ready to crawl underneath my bed. It was (laughs) like, oh, this is what happens now. Like people I don't know are going to pass judgment and judgment in a way that's like consequential to to my life and my future. And so I haven't been able, I haven't read any of the reviews. I'm told they're all, you know, very positive, but I just kind of like, I need to, to protect my, my mental health and sanity kind of live in the space of the guy who was happy to finish that book and happy to work on it with an editor he liked. And, you know, when it was all said and done, I enjoyed this and I, and I think it's relatable and I think people will connect. And I've heard from so many people that are feeling that way, but these other things, it's not like this moment of like victory. It's not like I won the game and I left with some trophy and even a book, you know, I've always been a journalist, so I have a built-in market, you know, like they're, you know, they're there regardless, right? They're reading the globe, they're subscribed to the globe, you know, uh, but this, it's like, I mean, I'm selling things, I'm doing publicity. It, it feels very much like I'm now in this blank space where like, it's supposed to achieve some sort of success. And, and I don't know how you define that. Is it a success? Cause I wrote a good book. I'm happy with, is it a success? Because the bestseller is it a success? Because you know, do I need Oprah to put me into a book club? I, I it's it feels very uneasy, and so you know, even today I went to the gym this morning and I saw a woman I'm friends with, and she said, "Congratulations, I haven't seen you. Uh, you know, how's it going?" It was like it, I bored her to death, but it was like I don't. It doesn't feel like a moment of congratulations. It feels like a, an uneasy time, you know. But yeah, yeah. but I'm trying to enjoy it. I mean, you're you're wonderful to have a conversation with. This is. You know, I've been doing a lot of quick hit radio things, but like to actually spool it out and have a conversation. I mean, there's a reason that I, you know, every time I get in the car, I'm listening to a podcast. I feel like this is much more human and honest yeah, uh, than the, the package media that we all grew up with. So yeah, uh, thank you for allowing me to have my little therapy session there. Oh, no, about, I, I, I think your approach you know. is probably the more healthy one, because if you were, you know, if you were jumping onto uh, whatever the equivalent of is, uh, you know, of the Nielsen ratings to see where your book was every single day. And actually you can do that on, on Amazon. You can see where you're rating every single day. Uh, no way. <laughs> yeah, that would, you know, that would really debilitate you, I think, and, and probably shut down, uh, you know, your most vital gift, which is being that observer. And then that, that kind of translator of, of what you're observing. So just, I kind of leapfrogged the way this all came together. It started as a story assignment 
from the Globe, Boston Globe magazine editor, correct? And correct. And, and took on this life of its own and became became a book. Yes. And so the the way the 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 book opens is is the way um this whole story opened in this magazine editor's office. So I was lured there with one of the oldest lies in journalism, which is we have a story we think you'd be perfect for. And so I, I've heard this before. You kind of turn your BS detector all the way up, you go down, you sit there and I plopped down in the seat and the guy looks at me and said, we want you to write about how middle-aged men have no friends. And in that moment, as I'm having like this existential crisis of like anger and tears and all this stuff going through me, he is rattling off all these things that were new to me, all all these facts about how there's a loneliness epidemic. It's disproportionately affecting men, particularly middle-aged men how it has all these dire consequences for your mental health, which made sense. But he's laying out all, all these facts about how it affects your physical health. Like your, your friends, or your lack thereof, can, it can make you wildly unhealthy, make you much more susceptible to basically every disease you don't want. At that moment, the Surgeon General of the United States was a guy named Vivek Murthy, who's now uh, one of the leads on the coronavirus response mm-hmm. for Joe Biden. But he was Obama's. Uh, uh, Surgeon General. And that was his platform, loneliness, this loneliness epidemic, in the same way that, you know, when I was a kid, C. Everett Koop was trying to get rid of cigarettes, right? right. So the Surgeon sure. General uh, in Obama's uh, administration was taking on loneliness. And it seemed like no one was really listening to him. You know, I, I, I shouldn't say no one, but it, I had never heard anything about it. And it wasn't clicking. And I, and I think I know why I was experiencing it in that moment where it was like, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to be the guy. Why am I the perfect guy to write about, you know, middle-aged loneliness? <laughs> you know, I take a quick walk back to my desk and I'm trying to talk myself out of the story. And it's like, I got, I'm a guy, I'm not a guy without friends. I have plenty of friends, right? And I, as I'm just walking, I'm rattling off, oh, this guy, God, I haven't talked to him in a couple months. And then this other guy, and I don't even know what's up with him. I haven't talked to him in a year. And by the time I sit down at my desk, it's like, I, I am perfect for the story, but not because I'm unusual. It's because I'm very sure. typical. Right. And I'm relating to this topic. And I think a lot of people will as well. So I get the assignment, take it on. I'm doing a lot of research in the science of all these things. It's been, a, it's, it's a hot field. There's a lot of people who are looking at these issues of loneliness, but also friendship, social connection. What's the role of social media? And And then comes the day where I have to write this story. And I was sitting in this room on this couch, panicking, as you normally would. It's early one morning. And I'm like, so what what is it that they want me to do? Why was I... You want me to just say, admit I'm a loser? Like, I have no (laughs) friend? Like, fine. That's fine. I'll admit it. Is that what you want? And I type out the story in a sort of meta fashion, which can often be grating. But it's like a story about how I don't want to write this story. I send it in. I fully expect the editor to be like, ha ha, nice try. But yeah, you're going to have to, you know, do this as a journalist and not as Andy Rooney. And, um, but no, they ran the story as is it comes out and it went bananas. It went so viral that I've never been involved in anything like this. It just consumed my life. And this is an article that had the headline, which I would have argued against had they even told me this was a headline. It it was something like the biggest threat facing middle-aged men is not smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. 
That is the longest, like most clinical thing I've ever seen in my life. But it goes on to, at the time at least, become the most popular article in the history of the Boston Globe. That's amazing. And amazing. It was, you'll, you'll enjoy this. It was surpassed by, uh, here's what Tom Brady eats in a typical day. Well, um, I mean, recipe you know, for who, avocado ice cream. Exactly. Uh, so, so anyway, the, this, this thing starts and now all of a sudden I'm, 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 you know, I'm getting booked on radio stations. I I'm doing the rounds. I'm on with the surgeon general. And it just felt like by, by raising my hand, by walking my story through this issue and getting to the end where I kind of conclude, yes, I have this, I have this cancer that is apparently infecting everyone and no one's talking about it. It made it okay for a lot of other people to say, I do as well, you know, like this, this is my story. And so the responses start coming in by the thousands. It was really incredible, really deeply moving emails, you know, a lot of people who were offering advice, a lot of people who were desperately lonely, a lot of, I mean, so many things I hadn't considered, I hadn't addressed, you know, what happens when you get divorced? What happens when your spouse dies? What happens when you move? You know, what happens if you're a severe introvert? What happens when you're a retiree? You know, all all these uh, deep issues, but it was very clear I was on to something. And what I was on to was this cancer that's affecting everyone. Yeah, what's really interesting is that, and you point this out um, in, in the book, in various guises, that there's a certain type of bonding uh, beyond a certain age that is actually discouraged among men. And, you know, a lot of times the, if you ask a guy to rattle off, you know, his best friends, as, as you point out, a lot of them are guys that, well, you know what, when I think about that, I really haven't had a substantial conversation with that person for years. Oftentimes, nostalgia, I think, gets confused with the with the foundation of what actually drives a friendship. Yeah, I, you're 100 percent right. In studies, when someone's asked to name their best friend, they name someone from childhood or high school, maybe college. And there is this cutoff. But but in reality, you, you're the person you probably may be closest with may be someone you don't even think of it in those terms. It might be the person you sit next to in the office or, you know, uh, somebody you see at the gym, another dad you see at, at a sporting event, whatever it might be. So nostalgia is was the curse that kind of affected the first part of my journey so if if we go back to this original article as the diagnosis of a cancer when i heard from all these people they weren't they weren't they didn't need to be convinced that there was a cancer they were like what's the cure and so the cure is friendship right it it, it seems simple enough so what I did at first, I, it, what felt like natural was I've got to fix my old friendships. You know, I've got to make these things current. And, and it was a nostalgia trip. And I did all these things. You know, I, I, I started, you know, like a little thing with two of my best friends. I tried to reunite my high school class and bring back senior skip day. I was doing these things and they were fun and they were gimmicky, but they were kind of one-offs. And so you know, I, I was running around doing all these things, which was great. You know, it was great to reach out to these people and say, it's been too long and catch up a little bit, have a good laugh. So many of them had seen the original article. So they, you know, that was the go between. They would tease me and say, oh, of course, I always knew you were a loser. Ha ha. Um, but the, the friend truth was that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what friends are for. There's a, there's a large section in the book about how, uh, how men communicate through ball busting, you know, uh, busting chops. But, um, 
And I love that. I'm so good at it. Sometimes I think when someone's not receptive to it, I think Boston's kind of a, oh, yeah. a yeah. humble law of, of the uh, jungle. Yeah. It's like cut them off at the knees. Uh, that's how you tell someone you love them. You tell them you hate them. Right. But uh, anyway, um, yeah. So at first I was about, you know, this nostalgia trip. Let me get the the band back together, essentially. And then at some point, I think it was when I was in my sort of lonely sitting in this room trying to write the first half of this book where it was like, you know, I look out the window and it was like, it's great that I've, I've reconnected with my past. But the thing is, I still don't have anyone to hang out with on a Wednesday night. That was kind of this thought experiment. Yep. I live in this community now that's about, a, you know, an hour away from the one I grew up in. So, you know, far enough removed where I'm in a new ecosystem. And I think I was guilty of thinking that these things would happen naturally with no effort. You know, I'd just meet meet that other parent uh, on the sidelines at a little league game and we, we'd connect. And next thing you know, we'd all be having beers on the beach or whatever it might be. But, you know, I was overscheduled. That person was overscheduled. Even if we felt that connection, you know, we weren't following through. We were saying, hey, we should get a beer sometime. But were we ever actually doing it? You know, not consistently enough. And so, you know, the epiphany was that if I really want to reap the health health benefits, these miraculous health benefits of friendship, it needs to be a part of my daily life. It, it, it can't just be that like guys weekend away I do every year with the college buddies, right? Like that, that's great, but that, that's not enough. And so I need to integrate it into my daily life. So I, uh, what I ultimately did here was I, I tried to start like a fraternity for middle-aged guys on Cape Ann. And, and I invited a dozen guys that, you know, some I knew from here, some I knew from there. All, all that they had in common is that we, I felt that spark, which is, uh, I feel even awkward saying it because that's usually we all got together and uh, I, I laid out this elaborate story of this journey I'd been on that brought me to them and how I'm going to start the thing. And every other Wednesday, we're going to hang out and uh, see how it goes. And uh, it had some ups and downs. I mean, everyone was receptive to it. It took a little while to find its mission. COVID arrived. I mean, there were there has been all these twists. But uh, at the end of this journey, I could honestly say I've added, you know, a dozen new friends. And uh, at least four of these guys, I would call like new best friends. You know, yeah. there, there was this quote that I heard Mindy Kaling say, that I've kind of used as a mantra, which is that a best friend is not a person, it's a tier. And so when you think of it that way, like adding new best friends is not betraying the best friends of my past. Those are still my best friends, but why, why shouldn't I be trying to add new best friends? And those new best friends are the people that live in my community that I see on the day to day. And now these are the people I hang out with on a Wednesday night that I have to hang out with. And you have a notion I mean, that, that you reach a point in life <clears throat> where you no longer make friends. It's a very odd notion that, you know, to be your friend is this fixed entity where you had to have shared these formative experiences at a particular time in your life. When the fact of the matter is, oftentimes those types of relationships kind of, you know, uh, they uh, they run their route fairly quickly. And once you get done talking about remember when and then remember that and then remember this you don't have anything else to talk about. So then you yeah. get drunk and, and right. you know, when you recycle the same stuff, but yeah. you know, the ability to continually, you know, meet new people and be interested in what, in, in what they're interested in. Well, before you know it, you got yourself a friend. 
Yeah. And it's, it's a nerve wracking thing. Cause it's also like everyone can smell it on someone when there's someone coming on a little too strong, you know, <laughs> trying to like be a friend and that's off putting. And it's, it's, a, it's like, it, it's a very nervous thing. And, and to set out to do it, like I just, it, it was, you know, it's awkward. It, it's, I felt in so many at so many points during this journey, I felt like that awkward middle schooler again, who is like afraid to walk into the dance, you know, like yeah. I was just nervous and, th- and that's a good feeling that that sort of stuff had been absent from my life for too long because I think I just decided like I didn't need that or that was behind me or like, I'm, I'm just gonna, this is what, this is what happens. This is what men do this is what dads do. Right. Like we, we, you know, we, we take care of the kids. We, we, text our wives about what's for dinner and then we, you know, fall asleep on the couch, you know, and, and that's fine. What's, what's great about your book is that it, you know, it creates this space where, you know, it's okay to ask that question. It's okay to have that, that, that need or that desire for that level of relationship guy to guy. Um, and, and, and I think is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know here. There's a lot of people that want permission to say, I want to continue to have friends, to cultivate new friendships, to re-examine the older ones and sort of con- continue moving forward. Have you noted? Yeah, well, I'll, I grant you all that permission. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the book makes people feel like, oh, they're not alone in that, in that, you know, in that feeling, in thinking about that phenomenon. You bring out something really interesting in the book where you talk about women communicating face to face and guys commuting, uh, communicating shoulder to shoulder. And until I had heard it broken down that way, it, it's one of those things where, oh my God, that's so obvious. I'd never thought of it that way. Say more about that. It, I mean, it blew my mind the first time I heard it because then all of a sudden you just see it everywhere. And, and so, yeah, so sociologists do these things called photo studies where they just kind of creep around, take photos of people interacting and then analyze them for patterns. And the easiest pattern for them to see is the differences between the way men and women interact. So when women are talking, they talk face to face and men stand shoulder to shoulder. And then you start to look around and you see how intuitively so much of the world is designed this way, right? There's like bar stools and box seats and, and you know, like and men do it naturally. I, I've even noticed that if I'm sitting across a, a table from a guy, we'll both just turn our bodies like at an angle, you know, so we're facing <laughs> the world together. And Quit so, looking at me. <laughs> yeah. And some, and I've always wondered, cause I've never been, it feels weird to even say this out loud. I'm not sure I ever have. Like, I've always been a little easy with eye contact in the sense that like, when I was a kid in this sort of stiff upper lip, John Wayne type thing, it was like, you shake a man's hand and you look him in the eye, you know? And it's like, I can't hold eye contact with someone while I'm talking to them. Or, you sure. know, yeah, I, it feels creepy. Yeah. And it's like, but there's a certain type of guy that still does that. Like they, they were raised that way. And, and so that felt freeing. And the reason men talk shoulder to shoulder, and, and we know this from the science as well, is because men bond during activity you know and if you look back in your past i I can tell you that you know all of your deep friendships probably came from something like school or sports we know that like things like military service you know whatever it may be anything that puts men in that shoulder to shoulder situation that that's where they're going to do their best bonding and it's why like just looking at things like I would always be a little bit uncomfortable when uh someone would say like hey let's get together for coffee 
And it was like, so we're just going to like sit across <laughs> from each other and talk about our feelings. Like, and I want to make that clear. Like, that's not what this book is about. You know, it's not about like guys need to get together and share their deepest, darkest emotions. Um, yeah. There wasn't a single drum circle mentioned as far as I recall. No, like that, that's just, that's the magic juju that comes out, you know, naturally. So, but you know, if, if a guy invited me for coffee, I'd feel a little weird. If a guy said, do you want to come over and help me cut down this tree in my backyard? I'd be there at 6am, right? <laughs> like it would be awesome. And, you know, maybe while we're chopping down that tree, that's when, you know, oh, like there's this going on yeah. and that and whatever it might be, we get into that shoulder to shoulder position and, uh, and that's where the magic happens. So, you know, to go back to like this idea that, you know, loneliness is, is, is the cancer, friendship is secure. It's not that easy to just say, all right, well, you've got to get in a shoulder to shoulder positions. Like you need to find these things to point you there. And even better, you need to find those things to put you there on the regular, on a consistent basis, because trying to schedule things is a nightmare, right? But if, if you've got something on the schedule, life tends to work around it. And what are these things? Like, it's not reinventing the wheel. It, it's these things we know. It's that, you know, weekly sports game or the bar trivia or the fantasy football league or whatever it might be that, that connects you with, with your friends. And, and I use a phrase in, the, uh, a phrase in the book. I call them velvet hooks. Mm -hmm. I really looked around to try and find thing that I thought described this, what we're trying to do here. And uh, Velvet Hooks is actually men who invented Velcro. Uh, the word Velcro is a portmanteau of the words velvet crochet, which uh, are French words, but in English that means velvet hook. I was like, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, I'm looking for something like Velcro, something that's not like an ironclad commitment. I don't need another commitment on my schedule, but just that loosey goosey thing, you know, like, yeah, if I, if I don't make my weekly men's hockey game, like it's not the end of the world. Right. right like, uh, right. but I got to show up for work every day. I got to do these other things. I got to, you know, keep my kids alive and fed every day. What I did was I was looking around at sort of velvet hooks that had worked, you know, as a result of being the guy that wrote the loser article, I was also, these things were coming my way. People were like, Oh, here's a, this cool thing. Or I know these two old ladies that have done this forever, whatever it might be. So it was for me when, when I started thinking about, all right, shoulder to shoulder, finding these velvet hooks, all of a sudden it became sort of fun to do. Like, you know, to say to a, a, a new friend or an old friend, like, you know, we got to kind of find our thing. And very oftentimes the reason you've connected with someone in the beginning is because you already kind of have that thing, right? Like you met him doing this. You both like this thing. It's about developing it and taking a little further. But, you know, these velvet hooks, if you look around, we know what they are. You just need to find them, put them on the schedule, make them regular. And then before you know it, I mean, I created this Wednesday night thing. It was, I think, initially, you know, it started hot and then it started to feel like, wait, what are we doing? We're just getting together in a barn to talk about our feelings. Like, you know, like this, there's only so many like, oh, how charming is it for us to like sit here and drink beer and, and act like juveniles. So we went up and down and around. But uh, ultimately, it turns out, and this is partly inspired by COVID, uh, we're just a group of guys that gets together and, and tries to light the neighborhood on fire. Like we get together <laughs> on Wednesday nights and it's have a, you know, a campfire. And yeah. by the end of it, it's like, Oh my gosh, should we dial nine one one? Right. Yeah. So like, this is our thing. Who knew that a bunch of middle-aged men would all be pyromaniacs together. You but, guys could um, kill two birds with one stone and all become volunteer firefighters too. 
Well, we've got, we've got a firefighter on the crew, which is good because, uh, yeah, I mean, so we've been doing, that's what Wednesday night has become during COVID is we basically get together around a campfire. And I mean, did I have to write a book to get back to, you know, the the prehistoric man? I, I don't know, but like, this is where the journey took me and the camaraderie of the campfire. One of the activities that you undertook uh, that was of particular interest to me, actually, given our relative ages, you're a bit younger than I am, but surfing and surfing in new england um are you have you stayed with it oh i'm a junkie are you a surfer uh well you know what i i'm gonna say yes i'm a surfer because i got up a few (laughs) times this summer and i and and you're gonna relate to this the next day you feel different about yourself your perception of yourself is different and yeah so you know up that word stoked it's it's a thing yeah yeah oh janice no janice here yeah Oh, that good for you. Yeah. The, uh, surfing became my velvet hook with the guy I thought was my, you know, but thought of as my best friend. Um, we just needed this thing to get together and we kind of found it together. And yeah, surfing in new England is a, is a specific thing. There's actually waves today caused by the storm and, uh, but the winds are bad. That's what I'm telling myself. Oh, there you go. You're, you're, you're deeper into it than I, and I don't know that I can rightly call myself a new England surfer because I have not gone out in the winter. And well, so I'm I'll telling t- myself I'm going to get better this summer so that I feel confident enough to go out next winter. This coming Saturday, I'm actually competing in, for a story, competing in the Mid- New England Midwinter Surfing Championships down Where in is Rhode this? Island. Oh, and Ro- what, what beach? It's at Matunic, Matunic, Rhode Island. Um, and uh, I'm told it's, you know, just for fun and all that. But it uh, winter surfing in New England, it's a, it's a thing. Like, I've been doing it a lot this winter. Uh, and every time I get to the edge of the ocean... There is something in my body. It's the same thing that tells me not to go too close to the cliff or too close to the <laughs> fire. It's telling me don't go in the North Atlantic in February. Like, don't do this right now. Why would you? <laughs> I mean, but wetsuit technology is amazing. And uh, it has kept me alive and safe. And the reason is because surfing is essentially a winter sport. It's just that winters look a lot different in Hawaii. You know, yeah, where they're in New sure England. Do. Yeah, we get these nor'easters that come through, and usually the day or after that, sometimes two days, it's like world class surf. But you got to go out in in you know your face lathered in Vaseline to keep from getting like windburned, and it's uh, you know by the time you get out, you're, you you can't you can't use your car keys to open the door. Yeah, but see, I never see Kelly Slater looking like that. No, I've actually seen when, when the really good pro surfers, occasionally you'll see the video where they go to Alaska or something, uh, Iceland on a gimmick surfing trip. Like at some point in the video, they'll all say like, I, I could never do this. Like if, if this was what surfing yeah. was, I would not be a surfer. I'd be, yeah. I'd be doing something else like it. Uh, but you know, surfing is, uh, is more popular than it's ever been in new England during, during lockdown in the spring. I mean, the beaches were, it was insane how many people yeah. were there. Absolutely. But the good the good news is that, you know, in the winter, the crowds thin out. So you've got, you can get some waves to yourself, but you have to, uh, you have to earn it. But yeah, you, you got to do it. You know. And you've gone hardcore. That's great. I really, I, I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed your book. Uh, and, and I know that the folks listening to this podcast are going to be really interested in, in, um, in reading it also. You kept using the word um, cinematic. 
to to describe some of your efforts, uh, which is particularly pertinent to this podcast because I talk to a lot of filmmakers. So I'm naturally wondering who's going to be playing you in the movie. Oh, that would be great. You know, I uh, I think. Um... Well, no one. You right? got to have no, Affleck but, uh, and Damon on speed dial. I mean, it isn't doesn't isn't that part of the uh, the Boston code? You can't do a movie like about Southie without one of those guys. Come on, Billy. What yeah, are you thinking, or, or, guy? Or, the, or one of the Wahlbergs. Um, oh, but, one of the Wahlbergs. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I'd love to see it be a movie like. I'm glad to be a part of this simple thing, right? It it, it could have been any guy. It just happened to be me, and and I'm glad to say to be the guy that just gets to raise his hand and say, this is happening to all of us. And, and, you know, I do use the word cinematic. I I do. I I was a, uh, a, a film studies minor in college. I I always had ambition. Oh, where are you? Yeah. Yeah. When when I graduated college, I realized my skills were that I could read and watch TV. That was about (laughs) (laughs) English and film studies. Uh, It it would be great if someone turned it into a movie because the more, it becomes normalized to like talk about these things and to think about them as things you have to do, you know, like, or you should be doing. I mean, to think that when you wake up each day, you've got to like take care of your job and your family and hit the grocery store and you should probably get some exercise in. Like, I'd love to see, you got to have some friend time there as well. You know, like the average American, their friend time is like pitiful. You know, it's measured in these time use surveys. And so much of it is bookended on the weekend, but we're still talking like an hour a day on the weekend. And that, that's our like best time, you know, and that, that's a cumulative score. So most of the time, I think, you know, people wake up and go to bed and they don't ever interact with a friend, you know, like, or even worse, they might interact with people they don't think of as a friend. They think of them as a coworker or someone they just see at the coffee shop every morning or wh- whatever it might be. And like taking it to that next level is, has been like the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I will being willing to be vulnerable and to be the guy who's like trying to make friends, trying to make this issue like, okay to talk about. I don't think I was ever miserably lonely, but I think I was, I was the run of the mill American guy and the American guy, it's measurable. I took this thing called the UCLA loneliness scale and I was the dead average for American adults in that score. That, that average score is actually where science, uh, what science would consider high loneliness, you know, like these are, this is getting worse and worse each year. Each coming generation is measurably lonelier than the one that came before. So our I, I can't imagine uh, social media is is going to do anything to help that, given the fact that, you know, so many so-called relationships are virtual. You, you know, you think of most people, if you if you go down the roster of your Facebook friends, you know, quite often they're not really friends. They're Facebook acquaintances or in many cases, they're acquaintances of acquaintances who, you know, you've somehow connected with. And there's no substitute for organic human connection and communication? Not at all. And that, that's a big question. It's one I only lightly touch on in the book because the science on social media is, is caught in a chicken and an egg scenario where we know people that spend a lot of time on social media are measurably lonelier, but we don't know if they're going there because they're lonely or if it's a social media making them lonely. But I quit social media as part of this book I was convinced to do it by a happiness professor at Yale. And I can tell you that for me, it was the right decision. 
And I feel like we don't need the science. Everyone is just at this point has like a terribly icky feeling about the whole thing, right? right. Like go to it. Uh, I, I use this example in the book. It's like you're opening the fridge, but you're not hungry and you're just kind of <laughs> looking around and why am I here? And not a compulsion. Yeah. And like in Instagram, which is kind of the hot, hottest one in the moment, it's the one that makes you measure the least happy when you're done. They, they, they study these things when you, when you log off of um, like, how does it make you feel? And it's like that we know that face-to-face interaction is the most important thing. I think when these things first started, I can remember when I first got a Facebook account, it was like, Oh my gosh, I'm able to find the, I haven't heard from this person forever. Didn't know what happened to him. But now that I'm off of it, I'm less likely to be angry at someone for some tiny little thing they said on the internet, right? right. I, am, I went recently for a hike with a friend I hadn't seen in a couple of years. We spent like two hours catching up. Wouldn't have been necessary if we were on social media, right? Because I would know what their kids look like and what, what's going on and her husband that had cancer and all these things. So it's like these mechanism of connection, you know, like they've, they've been truncated by social media. And I actually, so I dismantle everything as part of this book. And then shamelessly, I reactivated my Facebook page just to be like, Hey, I wrote a book. You got a book to friendship. sell, man. <laughs> <laughs> and also it explains why I just abruptly like left this whole thing a few years ago. And I mean, it's been like two weeks and I'm just thing to get off of it. I, uh, I'm doing a live like virtual event tonight that I'm actually being interviewed by another friend of mine who's a, a journalist. And so oh, wow. I kept it I kept it current just to tell everyone about sure. this because I want my friends to show up to this thing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as Mark Zuckerberg knows, the best way for me to connect with all the people I know is to do it through Facebook. But um, I'm itching to get out of there. And, it, uh, and it's because like I just, I, I haven't scrolled, I haven't done anything, but just in that, like you would reference a second ago, you know, I post, hey, I wrote a book, here it is. And it's like, someone leaves a comment and it's like, I have no idea who this person is. And I have to like click through like six different things to figure out, Oh, right. I met them like once when I was doing an article eight years ago. And right. like, they, these were the people that were eating up too much of my time. You know, as one of the things I did in the book is there's this, this thing called Dunbar's number. It's, it's a theory of how many social interactions, uh, 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 social connections a, a human can actually have how many like relationships you actually have space for. And the number is 150. And it was arrived at by a, a, an evolutionary anthropologist who studied primates. And he realized that for, for each uh, animal he studied, there was a relationship between the size of the neocortex in their brain and their social group. And when you measure a human's brain, that, the number that comes out of that is the number 150. And so I used it all in reverse, not in the way it was intended for, but I was like, all right, I'm going to actually sit down and like define who my 150 are, the people I'd like to have time and space in my brain to actually have a relationship with and eject the rest, right? And so uh, that was like a, a wonderful exercise because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't cutting people I hated or whatever. It was just getting rid of why, why am I Even 150 sounds like a, a huge number, but I guess it adds up quickly. I will, I wasn't sure. Like that was the big thing. That's part of why I did it. I was like, is 150 a lot or a little, you know, I went through, I had, I think I have 1300 Facebook friends is, you know, like 500 numbers in my phone, you know, just kind of like trying to figure out like who, who is it? And by like the way Dunbar this defines who would be in your 150 is he, he defines them as the people you would 
not be embarrassed to join for a drink if you ran into them in the bar. <laughs> which which is good. It's a cute, clever way. Like I get yeah. like if, if at least friendly enough, we're like, of course we'll sit and join you, and it won't feel awkward. Right. We know about fifteen hundred people, but there's a, there is a hundred and fifty that you can actually have a social connection with. And so by sitting down and mapping that out and putting in there some people that it's like I haven't seen this person in years, but you know I. I I still care about them. I need to folk, I need to use my energy there instead of on this random person I'm Facebook friends with and I can't remember how I met him. And I just started writing down names. I put them on post-it notes. I put them on the wall. And then when I counted them up at the end, it was exactly 150, which was just blew my mind. And that, that was life-changing. One of the real interesting points that you make also is kind of a, a discovery or a realization that the, the glue to... Uh, real friendships is shared purpose and it, it's not just a shared past. Yeah. Having a purpose. It's, it's essentially, I mean, in some ways it's interchangeable with this activity. Like there's a, this reason you're getting together, this thing you're doing, uh, when you're a kid, there's so many built-in purposes, right? Like you're, 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 you're in school or you're on this team or you're working on this project together or whatever it is. And parents are so good at getting the kids together and giving them a purpose. You know, like it's my kids will have friends over and I'm like, all right, yeah, let's see how big of a fort you can build in the backwoods, right? You give them a purpose and all of a sudden these magical connections happen. And purpose actually became very prevalent where when I tried to start this Wednesday night guys group, the, the interest was there. The love for the idea was there, but we kind of flailed around for a bit looking for a purpose. And I had intentionally left that blank because I didn't want it to just be my thing. I wanted to get a group of guys together and let's, let's have this be a we thing. And I was basing the idea loosely on this concept that comes out of Australia, which is this thing called the men's sheds. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a shed where men are supposed to gather it was hatched by a disgruntled old guy at a senior center just through <laughs> a fit one day and said, all the activities are for women. I'm, I'm going out back. I'm cleaning out that shed. That's the men's shed. That's where the men hang out. Leave us alone. Right. Meet and me there. So, yeah. And he did this. He got a little, a little media coverage. And before you knew it, there were a thousand of them in Australia. There is more than a thousand elsewhere in the world. And before COVID, they were opening at the rate of about one per day somewhere in the world. This thing was just running wild. And what is a mention? It's TBD, right? Like they, it's just like a gathering place and then the men figure it out. Sometimes it's like, oh, we're going to be, we're going to put some woodworking tools in here. We're going to work on motorcycles. They, they kind of find their purpose. But when I started my, essentially what was a men's shed for, for guys in my community on a Wednesday night, I didn't have a purpose. And for a while we flailed. You know, like it, it, I, I referenced this earlier after a certain point, it was like, we're just going to get together in this barn and, and talk like, uh, like all of a sudden one guy proposed that we should build a BMX track. And it was like the perfect thing, you know, like, you oh, go, that, right. yeah, easy enough. Like, yeah, again, a velvet hook, right? Like you just move some dirt, some shovels. That'll be great. And honestly, we have yet to put a shovel in, in the ground, but just about how we're going to do this. That's the idea. <laughs> I mean, because like, yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, it's probably more fun to talk about than actually like get land permission and oh my God, we insurance and whatever else it might be. But um, 
So yeah, we basically light stuff on fire and talk about how someday we're going to build that BMX track. But in the meantime, I love it. Uh, I love it. So the the book is yeah. we need to hang out. It is a uh, informative, enlightening, thought provoking, and fun read. The author is Billy Baker, and uh, look for him in the Boston Globe, and look for him on the bestseller list, and look for Matt Damon to be playing him in about eighteen months. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Billy, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. I've done a lot of interviews and this is the most fun I've had. So thank you. Oh man. All right. Well, I am sincere when I say we need to hang out. Absolutely. Get yourself a winter wetsuit and I'll take you out and show you how the Atlantic Ocean will beat you up in February. It is a deal. All right, man. Good luck tonight. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.